is Our American Stories, and this is Lee Habib, and we love to tell stories about the American dream, and we call it our American Dreamers segment, and we've done a bunch in the past. Our favorite, Mario Andretti. We had actually done a short piece on Andretti, and ultimately, we got in touch with Mario Andretti himself, and when we pre-interviewed him, we thought, my goodness, what a life story. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to catch all of Our American Dreamer segments. And today, you're about to hear the story of an airline company that you know. They make planes. But what you don't know is the man behind the name of this company. Let's take a listen. In the summer of 1889, eight-year-old Wilhelm Edward Boeing has no way of knowing that one day he will be running the biggest aviation company in the world. His father, who was also named Wilhelm, emigrated from Germany to what was seen as the El Dorado for timber merchants, Detroit, Michigan. He was 22 and penniless, yet saved every cent and became a millionaire through the timber and mining industries. More specifically, from the iron called taconite. Here's William Edward Boeing Jr. And his father was a, a very fast learner. I mean, to come to this country and live here uh, just twenty some years and be successful as he was, I find that most remarkable. The son adores his father and sees him as a role model. Suddenly, catastrophe enters young Wilhelm's world. Unfortunately, he died of influenza at the age of 41 or so. And, I mean, having his father die at such an early age was certainly most difficult for the family. For Wilhelm, life becomes even harder when his mother remarries. The boy withdraws into his own world and openly refuses to accept his stepfather. Stepfathers and stepsons don't always um, mesh perfectly right off the bat. Uh, and he may have uh, felt that this was good for young William to get a little more discipline in his life and so on. And so he was packed off to school. Young Wilhelm Boeing, who just turned 13, is about to embark on a journey into more of the unknown. Since his father's death five years ago, the boy has become more and more of a loner. His new family sees him as a troublemaker. His mother sees no other option but to send him halfway around the world to a Swiss boarding school near Lake Geneva. Wilhelm was left to cope on his own. I imagine for a young boy from Detroit, Going to Switzerland at that time, it was really an undertaking. But apparently, uh, he did quite well. Tens of thousands of people have experienced that and survived it. I think in Boeing's case, you have to wonder if it didn't make him a very uh, sort of self-contained uh, and stronger person. That I mean, he was in Switzerland, after all. Uh, having to, to cope with uh, foreign culture and a foreign language, or several foreign languages, being Switzerland. 
many years later, the hard years at boarding school are over, and Wilhelm Boeing finally sees the Statue of Liberty appear on the horizon. After all the lonely and authoritarian years in Switzerland, one thing is clear for Wilhelm. He's an American. He signs his name as William Boeing. William enrolls at the elite university, Yale. But one year before graduation, he drops out and takes a steamship west to Washington State. Yes? Mr. Boeing, your whiskey. Oh, thank you. Stuart, at what time do we arrive in Grays Harbor? Now we arrive tomorrow morning. Is there anything else? No, thank you. That's all. Have a good evening. For Boeing, it's another venture into the unknown. Yet he follows in the footsteps of his father. He wants to go into the timber business. It really was the Wild West. Only instead of cowboys and cattle, you had timber and loggers. So there were lots of saloons, hotels, all the kind of places that lumberjacks would want to go to spend their hard-earned money. It would have been quite a shock. Um, very, very different than what he was used to. In many ways, it must have been very similar to um, Wilhelm Boeing's uh, you know, experiences back uh, in Michigan when he first came over as an immigrant. I mean, for a kid who had been raised in, in luxury, sent to boarding schools, uh, uh, had gone to Yale, it must have been a shock. At about the same time, on the east coast of America, thousands of miles away from William Boeing, and at first unnoticed by the world, a technical quantum leap, a revolution that would change the world is taking place. And when we come back, we'll hear what that revolution was, and we'll hear much more about this American dreamer's story, and it's the life of William Boeing. And again, to hear all of our American Dreamer segments, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to our American Dreamer segment and the life of William Boeing. And when we left off, well, there were some changes afoot on the East Coast. A couple of bicycle mechanics from a little tiny place called Akron, Ohio, were in Kitty Hawk, experimenting, messing around, doing what American entrepreneurs have always done. Well, just challenge each other to do something, well, that no one else had ever done before. Let's pick up the story of William Boeing. Brothers Wilbur and Orville Wright have been studying flying devices for years. On December 17, 1903, the two bicycle mechanics finally succeed in performing the first motorized flight in the history of mankind. This feat would soon change William Boeing's life too. In fact, in the deep woods of Washington, Boeing manages to achieve things that nobody thought him capable of. Within a short period of time, he started the Greenwood Timber Company. So he had his own logging business that he had started. He also started Boeing and McCrimmon, which was a land holding company. So he would purchase land so that he could log it and possibly for the mineral rights. But once he was done logging it, this holding company then sold the land. Um, So he was very successful in the few years that he stayed in the Grays Harbor area. In all of his pictures, he's always well-dressed. Part of that is just the time, but part of it was just who he was. Um, You see photographs of him out in the woods, and yes, he's wearing rough clothes, heavy wool slacks, but they were always nicely made. You can tell when you look at the pictures that it's high-quality material. He just always presented himself as a well-dressed, well-heeled businessman. Boeing is a wealthy bachelor who has achieved great success. And in 1909, at the World's Fair in Seattle, he sees a manned airplane fly for the first time. This sparks a fascination with aircraft, and in 1910, his life takes a new turn when he travels south to the Los Angeles International Air Meet to see the first aviation show in the United States. Since the Wright brothers' motorized flight in 1903, the developments in aviation have been immense. Thousands of spectators come to see the flying machines. William Boeing is fascinated and wants to try it himself. He approaches most of the aviators asking for a ride and is turned down by all but one. Here again is William Boeing Jr. There was a French pilot by the name of Poulin who was going to give him a ride. However, unfortunately, the Wright brothers sued Poulin for infringement of patents on the controls. And he was one very mad Frenchman that he, he didn't like that. It just didn't work out. Poulin ended up leaving the Los Angeles area before Boeing could get a ride in an airplane. But he obviously was very attracted to this. Many consider the ride that Poulin failed to give William Boeing to be the greatest missed opportunity of his life. Tell me about your trip to Los Angeles. Oh, it's quite fascinating. Actually, I attended an aviation event a couple of weeks ago. It was amazing. Fixated by the thought of flying, Boeing returns to Seattle. His conversations keep revolving around aviation. 
Then four years after his visit to Los Angeles, Boeing is introduced to U.S. Navy Lieutenant Conrad Vestervelt. William Bowie? Conrad Vesterville. Nice, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Heard a lot of good things about you. Oh, all good, I hope. Well, I hope so, too. <laughs> you uh, been up in a plane before? Well, I uh, studied aerodynamics at MIT, so oh. I kind of designed those things. Really? I'd like to talk to you more about that. You know, uh, aviation is the future. Yes, it is. Yeah. Westervelt was a well-educated East Coast young man who was in the U.S. Navy. He comes from a very similar background from Boeing. Boeing finds a friend in Vestervelt, who sees the airplane as something more than the widely held belief that it was nothing more than an expensive toy. To affirm that the aeroplane is going to revolutionize the future is to be guilty of the wildest exaggeration, trumpeted the Scientific American magazine that year. But for Boeing and Vestervelt, there's only one topic in life, flying. So you have these two young men, they're single, they're fairly well off, both interested in aviation, both interested in similar things. And so it was, the two of them finally got their airplane ride in Seattle. On the morning of July 4th, 1914, Boeing and Vestervelt celebrate the 4th of July by purchasing tickets for a ride on a push-prop Curtis seaplane on Lake Washington. Boeing goes first. Sitting on the lower wing of the plane, Boeing's feet dangle over the front of the wing, while his hands grip the edge of the wing. And there is no seatbelt. He spent uh, the afternoon taking turns with his friend, uh, and they became more and more interested. This is 1914. The short of it is that they looked at it and they said, we can build a better airplane. And that was the beginning of Pacific Aero Products that eventually became the Boeing company. A small shipyard situated on Lake Union in Seattle, an ideal spot for building water planes, becomes the nucleus of the Boeing Airplane Company. On June 15, 1916, William Boeing has his new 26-foot-long seaplane, Bluebill, pushed out onto the lake. His test pilot is unaccountably late. Growing impatient, Boeing climbs into the cockpit, takes the controls, and taxis out into Lake Union, determined to perform the first flight. As the late pilot rushes up to the hangar, he's just in time to see Boeing turn the plane into the wind, gun the engine, and lift off. Now, Father hadn't had a lot of experience. He'd had a little bit in this Martin seaplane, but that's what was about all he'd had. And you know, it's a, quite a performance to get in an airplane, brand new, that actually he and Westerfeld had constructed and take off. Boeing's maiden flight is a success, flying over 900 feet. The following morning, Boeing and his plane are the talk of the nation. For the last two years since 1914, World War I has been raging in Europe. 
For the first time in history, aircraft are deployed in battle. Yet America fails to see the importance of aviation in war. Boeing sees an opportunity. Boeing was not only a, a believer in aviation and an enthusiast, but he was also, uh, in his way, I mean, he was a patriot, and he thought uh, America was asleep at the switch, that the war in Europe was already showing that aviation had a role, and it was a role that was increasing almost week by week as aircraft improved and as their uses were diversified. When the war began in 1914, the American Army had 55 aircraft on its rolls, 55. I mean, Belgium had a more thriving military aircraft presence in 1914 than the United States did. Boeing wants to wake the military up with a spectacular event. He flew over the city and dropped fake bombs, uh, cardboard uh, missiles that, with the message in them, you know, sort of in a sense saying, wake up, we need to be, uh, our aviation needs to be prepared. You know, we're vulnerable. And the story goes that one of the places he dropped them was at a football game between the University of Washington and uh, the University of California. And I've checked, and, and there was a game here in November when this flight took place. So I believe that part of it is, in fact, true also. And when we come back, we're going to continue with our American Dreamers segment for the hour, the life of William Boeing. It's a story you should know, and that's what we do here on our American Stories. You know the products. You know the innovations. You know the inventions. You just don't know the people behind them. And here in this show, here on this segment, and regularly with our American Dreamers segment, we like to tell you the story behind the story of the man, the innovation, the invention. When we come back, more with the life of William Bowen. our American stories and we continue with the life of William Boeing and what I love about doing these segments and what our team loves is digging in and finding quotes and excerpts and so often is the case as it was with Henry Ford my goodness you have the Ford Museum sitting there in Michigan with all kinds of experts historians artifacts and not many people give him a call and what a life story that was we didn't do that as an American dreamer segment we did that Henry Ford piece as of this day in history so, by the way, make sure you go to our This Day in Histories, too. The Henry Ford story is a stemwinder, as is the Wright brothers, and you heard them mentioned in the last segment. What we're going to dig into now was the mind of Bill Boeing, and you're about to hear from one of the historians at Boeing about some original documents and what Boeing saw for the future, not only of his company, but what he saw for the future of America. 
And as is so often the case with these innovators, they are so far ahead of their time that most people, well, at the time, probably thought he was totally crazy. Let's dig in to the rest of the story. Today, Boeing's headquarters in Chicago, the workplace of company historian Michael Lombardi, is home of the company's most important document, which is kept in a safe, multiply insured and protected. This is the document that Bill Boeing put together when he decided to start the company. It's a wonderful document when you're, when you're trying to examine the genius and the vision of Bill Boeing. And keeping in mind at the time, uh, the airplane in the United States was just a curiosity. Nobody really saw a use for it. But Bill Boeing, in these articles of incorporation, put down what his business should be. And you see some amazing things, such as having airports and the ideas of... Uh, which was completely unheard of at the time, of people flying on airplanes and using the airplane for travel. It really shows the genius and the vision that Bill Boeing had. Because of the war in Europe, the Navy is looking to order 50 training planes. Boeing is very keen on getting this contract. All his hopes lie in his new seaplane, the Model C. Boeing calls in his best test pilot for a private meeting. I've got two Model Cs ready to go down to Pensacola, Florida, and I want you to fly them. I'm your man, sir. I can do it. I know you are, but I will tell you this is um, going to be quite a challenge. I've, I've got a lot of airtime in these models. I know what I'm doing. I know you do. That's why you got the job. But this will be completely different than what you've been doing in Seattle. Uh, there's different waves, there's different wind, weather conditions, and you'll be flying against the best in the country. And uh, this is for a government contract. 50 planes. 50. 50 planes. If you can earn this contract, then the future of the company is very, very bright. I cannot express to you how important this is. Uh, this is the future of the company, and you're the man to make that change. You up for the challenge? I can do it. Yes, sir. I'm, I'm, I'm your man. All right. I don't want you to worry about a thing. So here's to uh, future business and ultimately future successes. Okay. In 1917, the United States enters into World War I. Pilots and aircraft are now needed on the other side of the Atlantic. At Boeing's aircraft hangar in Seattle, there's an uneasy calm. They're waiting for the outcome of the test flights in front of the Navy Commission in Florida. Gentlemen, I've received news from Pensacola. They say the Model C is excellent. We have won the commission. We're in business. Now we have to build 50 planes in a short time. I'm counting on each and every one of you. Now let's get to work. Boeing received a contract for 50 of these Navy trainers. So it was our first government contract and the first, uh, the first production order that Boeing received. So this really was the, the beginning of the company. The son of a German immigrant is awarded the sought-after contract for planes to be used in the war against Germany. Boeing's people work in three shifts around the clock to complete this order. November 1918, World War I is over and America celebrates its victorious soldiers. 
Like all Americans, William Boeing is relieved that the killings on the battlefields in Europe have stopped. But he's anxious too. Surely there won't be any more defense contracts in times of peace. Boeing suffered at the end of the First World War, as all aircraft manufacturers did. It was, a, it was an industry that, that had really not existed in any significant sense before the war. Suddenly it was called into life by the needs of the war. Boeing immediately had to lay off uh, people. Boeing, who went into the aviation business with so much passion, is suddenly faced with enormous financial difficulties. This was in part because a surplus of cheap used military aircraft flooded the market, and many aircraft manufacturers, including Boeing, were unable to sell new aircraft. What can I do for you, sir? Well, sir, I've been working for you going on a year now, and yesterday I lost my job. I've got a wife and two little girls, and I don't know what I'll do without work. Well, the company's hit rock bottom. I mean, the government doesn't want our planes anymore. I mean, what do you want me to do? I pay your salaries and bills with my private fortune. If I didn't do that, we'd be out of business a long time ago. Yes, sir. Thank you anyway. No, wait. In which department do you work? Carpentry, sir. All right, I'll talk to your foreman. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Knowing that the business would continue sometime in the future, he wanted to hold on to his people. And the thing to, th think to remember at this time, these were very skilled craftsmen, woodworkers, seamstresses, and the engineers that he brought in. These people were hard to find, and it would be very difficult to find them again. Boeing had two choices. They could collapse and simply he could say, well, it was fun, and now I'm going to do something else, or he could keep it going with money out of his own pocket. Boeing puts $390,000 of his private money into his ailing company. In order to survive and keep from closing, Boeing is forced to diversify and start selling, among other things, furniture, countertops, phonograph cases, and flat-bottom boats called sea sleds. The sea sled can hit a speed of over 40 knots because they're equipped with, you guessed it, airplane engines. These boats speed across the Seattle waters with deafening noise. They built, you know, like a dozen of them. And they sold three until Prohibition came in. And suddenly, whether this is in fact why or not, we don't know, but suddenly they all sold, and they sold for cash. Almost overnight, the rest of the sea sleds disappeared. So the inference has always been that somebody saw their value as uh, bootlegging vessels to run up Puget Sound into Canada, where prohibition was not in effect. So Boeing contributed to the uh, bootlegging careers of many people in the area. But they were, they were fine vessels. Boeing keeps his company from going under by accepting even the tiniest of contracts in hopes of better times for his aviation business. One worker that came up to him and wanted to know if they're going to make it or not. And I think Father said, we get by this summer, we'll never look back. You know, they got by this summer and never have to look back. And when we come back, more on the life of William Boeing 
And as always, you can go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, go to our American Dreamers category, pull down the segments, take a listen, and I promise you, if you listen to the Mario Andretti story, you'll love it. The Bernie Marino story, fantastic. And the Harley Davidson story, almost as good as this Boeing story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and this is the final segment of our American Dreamer segment on William Boeing. And we learned about the innovation and the innovator and entrepreneur inside this man, but there was also a heck of a salesman. And in the end, well, you're about to hear about the biggest sale he possibly made for his nascent company. Let's take a listen. Uh, Good morning, Eddie. We're Mr. Boeing. Everything ready? Model C is ready to take off, refilled, and checked. Where do we fly to? We'll fly to Vancouver. <laughs> Where? <laughs> Seriously. Ooh, what do we do there? We pick up mail. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of storms in that area, and this time of year, the weather's not going to be that cooperative. We'll fly right up here, right straight up the coast, be in Vancouver before you know it. Yes, sir. Let's do it. In 1919, Boeing has a new idea. Planes could speed up the postal service and make it more efficient. He plans a direct flight across the Canadian border to Vancouver. When he returns to Seattle, this is a moment of triumph for William Boeing. In 1927, chances for a lucrative business opportunity arise for Boeing. One of the major leaps in the business for Bill Boeing and really put him on the national stage was the idea that they would try to win one of the uh, mail contracts, air mail contracts that the United States Post Office had put out for bid. Boeing's men get started. They want to create the greatest air mail plane ever built. The Model 40, as they called it, became the envy of its competitors. The airplane did beat the competition, and it was critical to the success of of Mr. Boeing winning this contract, uh, actually the biggest contract, which was flying mail from San Francisco to Chicago. Boeing's move displayed incredible foresight. He won the bid for the contract by deciding to use an air-cooled engine rather than a traditional water-cooled engine in his Model 40 mail planes. The Model 40, in addition to carrying mail, also had an enclosed cabin that could carry two passengers. So for this venture, William founded a new business, an airline company called Boeing Air Transport, later to be called United Airlines. In the first year of operation, 
it delivered an estimated 1,300 tons of mail and carried 6,000 passengers. This was a moment of triumph and revolution. It was a new concept of aviation, of, of blending passengers and, and airmail and everything together. This was the first time in this country that passengers, freight, and mail were carried on a route. This route was 2,000 miles long from San Francisco to Chicago. The Boeing airplane company had some success building military planes, but nothing on the commercial side. And this airplane really established the Boeing company as a commercial airplane company as well. Boeing started to show a profit from his airmail endeavor. The rule was that the mail came first. And so if they had more mail, passengers got bumped. But the, carrying those passengers actually is what made it profitable even the first year. And that is very unusual when you start something as new as this to have it successful the first year. As his company begins experiencing new success, so does William personally, as he meets and marries Bertha Paschal. From now on, she hardly ever leaves his side. Boeing gives the love of his life a gift, the Taconite, a yacht named after the iron ore his father once found that had brought great wealth to the family. But turbulence hits Boeing's flight of success with the Wall Street crash of 1929. It will become the most devastating stock market crash in the history of the United States. The mood swings against Boeing and the thriving airmail companies. When the depression happened, and then actually in the, some of the darkest days of the depression, the aviation industry was doing quite well, despite the depression. So this, of course, caught the attention of politicians in Washington. Politicians look for a scapegoat. In February 1934, William Boeing is summoned to a government antitrust investigating committee. Mr. Boeing? Mr. Boeing? Is it true that in 1916 you founded the Boeing Airplane Company in Seattle, Washington? Yes, sir, that is correct. And in 1927? Boeing is accused of creating a monopoly and getting his government contracts only through secret agreements. Building monopoly for your The company. government cancels all contracts. In the future, they want to nationalize all the routes. Boeing desperately tries to refute these charges. Sir, I did not create a monopoly. Nor did I cheat anyone. I simply had the foresight to bid low and take a loss the first couple of years with a long view in mind. The only thing I am guilty of is running a successful company. That's all. It was very unfair hearings. Uh, they weren't interested in the facts. They're more interested in the conclusion that they've arrived at before the meeting started. And so this basically was more a political vendetta Mr. Boeing, a man of the deepest integrity, is so hurt by the accusations that he regrets ever getting into aviation. All the charges were dropped, but the whole idea of, of being treated this way, that uh, remembering that Bill Boeing was uh, the epitome of a gentleman, that his word was, was everything, 
He was honest, a man of integrity, open and fair business. These were the things that he believed in. And to have that questioned was an affront to him. It, it uh, affected him deeply, and he sold his interest and moved on to a private life. William Boeing, who founded the Boeing Airplane Company 18 years prior to the investigation and then turned it into a booming business, resigns as chairman and sells his stock. He spends most of his time with his wife on their yacht, the Taconite. He serves as an advisor to the Boeing Airplane Company during World War II and is on hand again in 1954 for the rollout of the Boeing 707. airplane company's first jet and their first commercially successful jet airliner. Then on September 1956, just two days before William Boeing's 75th birthday, time stands still on board the Taconite. Here's the current owner of the Taconite, Gordon Levitt. I'm reviewing here the pilot house log of the yacht and uh, I'm looking at uh, September the 28th, 1956. With sincere regret, I record the death of the owner, Mr. William E. Boeing, at 1308 from acute thrombosis. Signed, Perth McIntyre, Master. No formal funeral was held and his family scattered his ashes into the sea off the coast of British Columbia, where he spent much of his time sailing. On December 15, 1966, William Boeing was inducted into the Aviation Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio. For outstanding contributions to aviation by his successful organization of a network of airline routes and the production of vitally important military and commercial aircraft. William E. Boeing established a company that remains iconic in American industry. Today, the Boeing Company is the world's largest aerospace company and leading manufacturer of commercial jetliners and defense, space, and security systems. Boeing products include military aircraft, satellites, weapons, electronic and defense systems, launch systems, and advanced information and communication systems. With $96 billion in sales, Boeing has customers in more than 150 countries and operations in 49 states that employ over 156,000 Americans. Despite his company's stature, Boeing carefully managed his public persona and did not reveal many details about his life. The life of the company Boeing founded, however, provides some insight into the man. At its root, it was a simple passion for flight that pushed him to innovate. Boeing did not necessarily have a grander vision of the future of powered flight than did his contemporaries. What he did have was the ability to recognize opportunities when they presented themselves and the skill to leverage his considerable personal resources in pursuit of those opportunities. Boeing also knew how to choose people who shared his goals and who could best complement his own talents. These characteristics, coupled with a strong commitment to excellent engineering and design, laid the foundation for a company 
that perhaps more than any other became a lasting symbol of the strength of American manufacturing in the 20th and now 21st century. And there you have it, the life of William Boeing. Great job by Greg and the whole team here at Our American Stories. And if you want to hear more, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Hit the American Dreamers segment. Pull down this link. If you have friends who love aviation, send it around. If you don't, send it around anyway. Again, this is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and now it's time for our weekly Bring Small Businesses Back segment, brought to us by the Job Creators Network, a group of job creators who talk about how public policy impacts jobs and the paychecks of everyone in the business, from the employer straight down to the employees. And by the way, we love small business because it's small businesses that create the jobs in this country, and you know, this sort of intersects with our American Dreamers segment, and that is that these folks are the folks who take the risks with basically their own capital. More often than not, the mortgage in their house, heck, some of these guys swipe and gals swipe a credit card. And so we love to tell their stories, their life stories, and also the obstacles they're up against as entrepreneurs. And today we bring you highlights of a conversation our own Alex Cortez had with a member of Job Creators named Adam Robinson, the co-founder and CEO of Hierology a technology and predictive data company set out to improve the practice of hiring. As we always do, Alex first asked Adam about his very first job as a kid. My first job was as a caddy. Uh, I was, I would, when we moved to Illinois, uh, my first summer there, uh, you know, we had a, there was a golf course, Turnberry Country Club in Crystal Lake, Illinois. I would ride my bike uh, to get there, you know, I remember trying to get there first because what I learned very quickly is the best golfers uh, tee off the earliest. And I I didn't want to chase golf balls into the woods all day long, so I wanted to, you know, carry a, a double bag around with a couple of scratch golfers. And that first foursome of the day guaranteed me I could do that. So I would get up and ride to uh, be first on the list. And I, I did that actually all, all through high school. You know, your first job story is exactly what mine was. It was caddying too and riding my bike there. And, uh, you know, not only the earliest you get the best golfers, but those best golfers often pay the best too. Yeah, it's funny how that worked. I mean, it was, and I could, you know, I tell you like the worst Saturdays and Sundays I had in high school were when I slept in. And, and went and played with the 10 to 11 o'clock a.m. foursomes. And, you know, I'm, I'm no scratch golfer, right? So who am I to complain? But, boy, I just remember, you know, you really paid a price for being a couple hours late. Uh, and, you know, I just <laughs> learned a life lesson at that point. You know, it's worth waking up a little bit early uh, to have the best customer. So that's, you know, I suppose that's stuck. That first job continued to help Adam long past he expected it to. And I have to tell you, you know, the, 
the for, my regular foursome, you know, the relationships I built with those guys led to me, uh, you know, when I was in college coming back and saying, hey, I'm looking for something, you know, I don't, I don't want a caddy. I'm looking for something a little more substantive. You know, you know, do you have any availabilities in your business? And I remember one gentleman uh, who, who worked in a company that made Mylar balloons, you know, the ones you get at the grocery store that say happy birthday. You know, they made those at a factory in Barrington, Illinois. And he said to me, do you, you know, do you want to learn how to drive a truck? And I said, uh, sure, why not? And so they, they had just bought uh, a brand new truck for the business to deliver to distribution centers. And, um, you know, it, I think I was 19, uh, taught me how to get my Class C uh, commercial driver's license. And I drove the truck that summer and I actually still have a valid Class C driver's license, which, uh, believe it or not, has come in handy a couple of times when I've had to jump into a, you know, a Class A motorhome and drive it because you need a Class C license for that uh, or, you know, drive, you know, for whatever reason, drive a big box truck from point A to point B. So, you know, caddying, uh, still paying dividends. And you're listening, by the way, to Adam Robinson, the co-founder and CEO of Hierology. And we love to talk to small business owners around this country and get their life stories down. Not everybody has to be rich and famous to be considered worthy of a story. American stories are everywhere, and they're ordinary folks, I think, often that have the most compelling lives. Adam, it turns out, attended the University of Illinois to prepare for this line of work that's far, far from what he's doing today. Well, I went to school to uh, be a history teacher. So I I am a history major, (laughs) a history and communications double major. So I was... Uh, like my mom was going to uh, teach high school history, and uh, there were no teaching jobs available. And so, you know, as as I was thinking about what I really wanted to do, a friend of mine worked for a staffing company, a technology staffing company in in Chicago, and I asked if they were hiring. He said yes, and uh, that is how I ended up in the HR business, and you know, I've been there ever since. And HR being human resources. And what Adam just said there reminds us all here of Home Depot co-founder Bernie Marcus's terrific commencement address and his similar experience. Bernie, it turns out, was admitted into Harvard Medical School, but wasn't allowed to attend because of a quota on the number of Jewish students. So he switched his career to pharmacy, found out he didn't like being behind a counter, and finally switched again into retail where there is no counter, at least if you're a good retailer helping the customer. Let's take a listen to what Bernie Marcus learned. How did I get from there to selling hammers? And that's a pretty long story, but it's interesting because when you think you know where your career will take you, it can turn out totally different. Let me mention here that in my years of meeting executives and successful people around the world, I have been fascinated by where these people started and where they ended. I know doctors who are real estate developers. I know real estate developers who are running medical companies. And in fact, I know one real estate developer who ended up as a U.S. Senator right here in Georgia. I know educators who are running big businesses. I know business leaders who are now teaching what they learn to students in classrooms. Maybe social work, politics, Perhaps we may even have a future president in this group. It's a possibility. Many of you are going to excel, I'm sure. 
And many of you will succeed in a field far from where your studies have taken you. Now, what's the moral to all of this? The message to be learned here is that there are many options in life. While you may be convinced there's only one way to fulfill a dream, you're going to find out there are many roads that lead you to your dreams. And those dreams may find you when and where you least expect it. And there's no doubt about it. When we come back, we're going to continue with the life of Adam Robinson. Again, an American dreamer. And as Bernie said, we too are fascinated with how these lives start and why and where they end up where they end up. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we continue with our Bring Small Businesses Back segment sponsored by Job Creators Network. And we're interested in the people who start small businesses and try to grow them into big businesses. We're also interested in why it's harder and harder than ever to do just that, because it is small business that's the backbone of the American economy, creating upwards of 70% of all new net jobs and much of our net wealth. And we're talking about Adam Robinson and his story And where we left off, Adam left the University of Illinois with a history degree, but there were no jobs teaching history. So he landed in human resources. And then he notices that the HR department of the company he was working for couldn't handle hiring enough people. They weren't treating hiring people like the serious sales process it actually is. They weren't making enough phone calls. And so Adam saw an opportunity, an opportunity to start a business to help other businesses get good candidates in the door for consideration. And here's what he told our own Alex Cortez about what he found. Our customers were horrible at interviewing. They're terrible at it, frankly. And what I learned in that business was that nobody teaches hiring managers how to hire. So if you're a manager in an organization, uh, you know, fewer than 10% of the time your organization has spent any amount of time or money teaching you how to hire people. Yet it's the most important function of your job is right people in the right seat. And so I saw this opportunity to build a system that we could give to our customers to help their managers be better at hiring people and to follow a process selfishly because it would help us meet our service level agreements because otherwise they were just taking way too long. So after a while, customers started asking me, hey, this system is great. Can I buy this from you? And I said, of course not. You know, it's what makes this unique. I, I, I'm not going to sell it to you, but thank you for being a customer. Adam, why do you think it. fewer than 10% of companies have a defined hiring process? I, you know, that's such a great question. I have no idea. I mean, you would think that, you know, for, for what is – for most companies, 70% of the cost structure, and that's their payroll, they would have a better process. But the reality is most companies have a better process for buying office supplies than they do for hiring people. And I cannot figure out why that's the case, uh, because there's no greater impact to your organization than 
been putting the right people in the right spot. There's no better impact. There's also no better anchor to tie around, uh, you know, your your company's waste than to staff up with the wrong people and try to manage through it. You bet. Adam then shared an example of how the hiring process too often goes, if we can even call it a process. That applicant sits down across the table from them, and and the manager proceeds to go on a 30-minute run about how great the business is and how great the opportunity is and, you know, what the professional uh, opportunity is and and just how great everything's going to be and how great the culture is and all the perks and everything. Uh, And wouldn't it be great to work here and grow a career here, and we're so fantastic, and we've won all these awards. And meanwhile, the applicant is sitting across from them, smiling and nodding very politely, uh, and, you know, at the end of the interview, the manager says, you have any questions for me? The applicant says, no, hasn't said anything the whole time, gets up, walks out the door, and the manager walks in to the recruiter's office and says, I love that guy. Let's bring him on. And that is the hiring process at, at most businesses. It is a, a complete crapshoot. Um, it's a coin flip at best, chance of success, hiring the person you think might work out. I think a coin flip is being generous because all these people are doing is smiling and nodding and telling you what you want to hear. It might be worse than that. But to Adam, hiring doesn't have to be a coin flip. So he took that system he built to help teach his clients how to hire, and he turned it into its own technology company, Hireology, a one-stop shop hiring platform. You know, if you think about recruiting as, as an insurance process, it's really applicable. So State Farm doesn't need to meet you to know that if you have a 16-year-old in your house and a sports car in the garage and your spouse has had four accidents, that you're probably going to cost them some money at some point. You know, maybe not you specifically, but people that have your risk profile are going to have certain outcomes a very predictable percentage of the time. And and they've built their business around managing those outcomes. Um, What's interesting is that math works uh, in many circumstances, right? You can, if you're, if you know what outcomes you're looking for, you can figure out the factors that lead to those scored, those scored outcomes. It works in insurance, uh, it works in financial services, right? That's the FICO score. What chance is this person going to default on this loan? It works in baseball with sabermetrics, and it works in hiring. There are certain factors that predict success in a job, and we, what we have determined are, uh, is a competency model that analyzes those factors, and, and our system is, is constantly running uh, and analyzing real-time job applicant data in scoring across our customer base. You know, at this point, somewhere close to 60,000 applications a week. Uh, so we're building this unique and, and robust data set that helps automate this process and, and give our customers the ability to pick the right people based on data, not based on gut feel. Not that gut feel isn't important. It is, but it's much more powerful when gut feel and data are paired together. One of the values Hierology helps companies test for is attitude. What's really interesting is, and I like to cite this, is this um, large study done at, by the University of Minnesota on identical twins separated at birth, and they tracked hundreds of twin pairs over uh, the course of their life. And what they found was, as it related to uh, attitude toward work, that it didn't matter whether or not the, you know, the job was blue-collar or white-collar, whether one of the twins was 
you know, married, divorced, kids, no kids, college, no college, um, you know, union, non-union, northeast, southwest, U.S., didn't matter. Uh, identical twins separated at birth report statistically identical levels of job satisfaction. So said differently, when you control for the genetics, attitude tends to be more hardwired than learned or acquired. And so what that means for a business owner is that person walking around your office with a rain cloud over their head probably has some good days, but is, is genetically predisposed and hardwired to have more bad days than good days. And so if the research shows better attitudes lead to better work outcomes, and research shows that attitude is, is most likely hardwired, then shouldn't we be screening for attitude because we're not going to change anybody? And there's, there's a, a really uh, straightforward way to do that. It's with a question like the following. You know, when was the last time you got really frustrated at work? Uh, and then the important question is, what was going on? Tell me about that. And if the person, you know, and, and then why, you know, why are you looking to leave that job? Is that influenced, you know, this kind of experience happened frequently, and is th that influenced your decision to, to seek employment elsewhere? And, you know, a good answer would be someone that says, well, you know, as frustrating as this place is, they gave me an opportunity, and I've learned a lot, uh, and so I'm taking that knowledge with me prepared for my next thing, right? That's a, a version of a pretty good answer. You know, the the wrong answer, the bad answer is, oh, yeah, this place is a mess. Uh, of course it's influenced that my boss is a jerk and I can't wait to get out of here. You know, that's, that's somebody who's got a negative disposition toward work, and they'll probably be saying that about you at some point to somebody else. Do you think a wrong answer is also being too positive, not recognizing that there have been challenges and almost lying? Yeah, I mean, you know, you as you do more of these interviews, you, you get to tune into you know, really, you've never been frustrated ever at at your job. That, that nothing frustrating. No, no, everything's great all the time. You know, that I, that would probably raise some red flags with me. You know, either uh, self self awareness isn't there, or they're just not confident enough in themselves to be able to disclose that you know it's okay to be frustrated at work. I mean, in either way, e either case, that's not a great um, that's not a great indicator for me. I'm surprised that you, you think it's, I mean, I, I know you're citing the data to back it up, but I'm surprised that it's, it's attitude is more hardwired than the culture and the environment in which you, you grew up in. Well, I'm surprised too, and you're listening to Alex, our intrepid correspondent, talking to Adam Robinson, co-founder and CEO of Hierology. And when we come back, we're going to continue our Bring Back Small Business segment and what a fascinating guy. What a really interesting subject, actually. I mean, the idea that we spend so much time on all these other things in our businesses, and we basically spend nothing, almost no time, on who we hire. It's crazy. Fascinating guy. We love the stories of ordinary Americans trying to start and grow small businesses into big ones. This is Our American Stories. Bring back small business, sponsored as always by the Job Creators Network. More after these messages.
was a thousand monkeys working at a thousand typewriters. Soon, they'll have written the greatest novel known to man. It was the best of times. It was the blurst of times. You stupid monkey. This is our American stories. We're doing our bring small businesses back segment. A little bit of levity there about the workplace, about bureaucracies. And we're talking about Adam Robinson, co-founder and CEO of Hireology, a technology and predictive data platform set out to improve the hiring process for companies. And again, we love telling these stories about folks, ordinary folks who start a business, maybe had studied something entirely different that had not even prepared them for the business they were about to found. And then suddenly they struck a nerve, they struck a chord, there was demand, and then they tried and, and succeeded in growing their business. And where we left off, well, we'd learned a bit about Adam and his tests for attitude. And that was just fascinating. Without hierology, businesses get hires right about four Four to five times out of ten. That's just depressing. But those who have used their platform are getting it right six to seven times out of ten. A huge difference in the life of a business. Especially small businesses whose human capital and capital capital can't afford to be wasted. It's these small businesses that Adam says hierology is focused on serving, while the big players in the human resources space are focused on on big companies. They're all competing over, you know, the top 50,000 employers in the United States. But below the top 50,000 employers, the, the, the big, big companies, are six to seven million small businesses and mid-sized companies that have employees uh, and have never really been sold to by, um, by technology companies, really in any industry. And what is driving this pr- proliferation of software as a service in small and mid-sized businesses is really two things. One, technology is super cheap to build now, so it's super cheap to buy. And so innovative ideas can get to market really quickly and deliver value um, in a very clear and compelling way to companies that need it the most. And so you no longer have to go through 18-month, 24-month sales cycles you know, raise $10 million, hope it works out, and try and sell some deals to a big company anymore. You can now do this on your own. It's, it's a democratization uh, of, of the software industry now. You, you can be a hierology. You can start a company, um, you know, solve a real need in the market and go after it uh, and, and, and scale when you're ready. And, and that's what's so exciting, I think, about the, the current day and age in, in technology entrepreneurship is really it's anybody's game. It is anybody's game. And Hierology proves this, by the way. Adam's grown this company from nothing to 100 employees and over 3,000 customers. Mostly, again, small businesses who are dealers and franchises. They all hope to grow together if the government doesn't get in the way. So the Department of Labor, I mean, you know, for decades has has, has set a threshold um, under which you must pay an employee time and a half um, for work they perform. So if they are, um, you know, not exempted from overtime, you know, previously if they made less than approximately approximately $24,000 a year and they worked more than 40 hours a week, you as an employer had to pay them time and a half for hours worked over 40. Uh, what they have decided to do uh, by fiat this year 
uh, with only about a six-month window um, that's going into effect December 1st for every business in the United States, regardless of size, is that threshold has been doubled to $48,500. And so what that means is, even if you're a manager in a business and you're a salaried manager in a business, but you're making forty dollars or $45,000 a year, your employer is now faced with a decision. They're either going to convert you to hourly and cap your hours at 40 a week so their costs don't go up, or that business is going to have to give you uh, a 10% or 20% raise, depending on the situation you're in, um, to comply with that rule so that you don't have to pay time and a half. Now, a couple of notes on that. Number one, the labor market is already a free market. So if you're underpaying valuable resources, they are going to go work for someone that's paying the market rate. So, you know, this notion that somehow employers are exploiting salaried managers is ludicrous to anyone who's actually ever employed anyone because what we know as employers is that our people will leave if we don't pay them fairly. That is rule number one. So we have every incentive in the world to, to pay people fairly, uh, and, and it's frankly the right thing to do. And so they're solving a problem that doesn't exist. The bigger issue is that what you've done is you've taken a, a, a giant rung off the economic uh, upward mobility ladder because so many people, you asked me about my first job, I mean so many people in their first job, their first management job, was in, a, in the hospitality or service industry, and they've used that to get a leg up in their career. And what you've done, what I know, because it's our whole customer base, what people are doing is they're going to eliminate management jobs. And, and they're going to make it harder for people to, there'll be fewer opportunities to get into management and fewer opportunities to start climbing that ladder. And if what the Department of Labor wants uh, is people having to work two or three jobs to make the same amount of money they used to make with one job. Uh, congratulations, that's what's happening. Uh, and if they want to remove uh, economic incentive uh, to work harder and get ahead in life, congratulations, that's what's happened. And if they want to make it harder for business owners to run their business, um, again, congratulations, that, you know, mission accomplished. It, it's, a, it's a tough regulation. Um, businesses really can't take a, a doubling of this number um, without making serious changes to their, to their operations. I mean, we, half of our company is affected by this rule, and what it means is we're hiring fewer people. Adam Robinson continues on effects of the new overtime rule, which at first seems good, but things are always more complicated than they seem. The only thing we, we have that the big companies don't have is we work harder, and we're just going to outwork you. But if, if, you know, if, if my people, if I and my team can't put in more than 40 hours a week to earn the business, you know, what competitive advantage does a customer have in working with Hireology? I mean, our product's great, absolutely, but you work with us because you know we're just going to work harder because your account is, is, is important to us. We're not a, a mega company. You know, we're, we're hungry. We're, we want to go out and earn that business. And so, you know, I now have to coach people on how not to work more than 40 hours a week. I mean, what startup on the planet lets their people, um, you know, it makes it okay that, you know, 40 hours gets it done. It's, just, it's, not, it's not possible to survive and, and work that way. Frankly, people sign up 
knowing that's the deal, right? The trade-off at a startup is, look, I'm going to work uh, my rear end off, but I'm going to get experience about five years ahead of where I would if I had stayed with a bigger company, so I'm going to learn a ton. Um, and I have this stuff called stock options, which this overtime rule does nothing to value. So, you know, the technology industry, what we do is we give our employees a piece of the upside, uh, and everybody gets stock options. So I have a company of owners. The Department of Labor does not view uh, equity incentive as having any value in the compensation equation. So guess what? We are no longer going to offer equity compensation to employees. Hmm. We can't. We can't. We, we can't pay them um, equity compensation and also take the hit, um, you know, to get in compliance with this rule. So what's going to happen is people – you know, uh, and, and our side uh, are either going to go hourly or we're going to raise their base and lower their, their overall upside uh, by removing the equity component. And we're being compelled to do this uh, by the Department of Labor. This if, makes no rational sense as an operator to do anything even close to this because it was frankly working just fine for us. You bet. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You're listening to Adam Robinson in our Bring Small Businesses Back segment, talking about the Department of Labor's Law of Unintended Consequences. Congress had nothing to do with this bill. The people of the United States had nothing to do with this bill. And business owners across the country are furious. So are managers across the country. More on Adam Robinson and Bring Small Businesses Back after these messages. stories and we're back with our bring small businesses back segment we wanted to close things out with adam robinson again the co-founder and ceo of hireology a technology and predictive data platform set out to improve the hiring process for other small businesses and when we left off we heard from adam about one of hireology's great challenges the government but he also told our own alex cortez about another problem maintaining hireology's culture as the team grows. And what that means is everyone's outgrowing their job every three to six months, their job changes. And oftentimes the training uh, protocol or, you know, different approaches, you know, haven't been updated. So employees find themselves in a situation that's brand new. So the customer says something. So irate customers on the phone demanding a refund. Is that person able to give one? What's the right thing to do? If your value system is intact and, and you've created a culture of trust and respect, that employee is going to be empowered to make the decision they think is the right thing for that customer at the time, regardless of what the policy is, because they're going to say, you know what, uh, you know, example of being hierology, we, we have a core value of own the result and to create wow moments for our customers. I felt like this mistake was on us. I think that, you know, the customer expected a refund. Uh, I, they demanded a refund. I don't think they expected it. Um, I told them this was on us and that we were going to give them their money back. I mean, that's you know, some companies would go, you did what? You're fired. Don't give, we don't give refunds here. 
You're a right? part and, of the the job creators network that Bernie Marcus founded, and, and one of the stories that I loved in in Bernie's book is is one of their people gave a refund to a guy who came into the store and brought a tire and said, I want a refund for this tire, and they didn't even sell tires at the Home Depot, and they gave him a refund anyway because the customer is always right. Yeah, that's right. And so the that's the customer's always right is a great is a great core value to talk about and they really lived that there and that story's a great example of it. But you know, the customer's always right means the customer's always right. And so if the customer's telling you something is true and you go, you know what, that's not true well, for you, the customer's not always right. The customer's sometimes right. And that's an inauthentic core value. And as you scale the business, it creates lots of confusion because people aren't sure when the customer's right and when they're not right. Right? So what's the policy? And so organizations like the Home Depot or like Nordstrom's, other you know, Zappos, these examples of these cultures where employees are empowered based on a value system to do what they think is right, that's how you grow rapidly. You remove all that cultural friction. And by the way, we learned that from the Houston Police Department's union chief, where there most of the complaints don't come from the citizens about bad cops. They come from the cops. And that came straight from the top down. Bernie Marcus is legend for this. And Alex, you remember hearing about Steve Wynn talking to Bill Bennett about this at his hotels. Yeah, it made me think, too, in Oxford here, just in our local town, I went to a dry cleaner, and there was a bunch of issues with my shirts, and the employees wouldn't give me a refund. I had to talk you know, to the owners eventually, and finally they gave me a partial one. But on the opposite side of that, Steve Wynn gives his people the power to spend up to $1,000 to take care of the customer. And in one case, this couple, this elderly couple forgot their pills and they were literally going to be in trouble. I mean, they haven't go to the hospital if they didn't have those pills. The employee took off the rest of the day, drove to their house in California, got the pills and drove back. Yeah, that'll pretty much have you a customer for life. Yeah, that's exactly what yeah. happened. And the Rich Carlton, by the way, gave $2,500 to their employees and it was spend the money whenever you think it's necessary. And my goodness, what a thing to do for your employees and what, amount, what an amount of trust to give to your employees who are then empowered to not have to wonder whether they have to call it up the flagpole to see whether they're doing the right thing or not. Great storytelling. And we also love telling the story of, well, funny things that happen in small business. Uh, we love following the profit, by the way. If you ever get a chance to watch this on CNBC, uh, basically Marcus Lemonis goes into small businesses, mostly family businesses, that are very dysfunctional. And they, they make a good product. They have a good restaurant or a good process but the, the, the people, well, they're just a little bit crazy. And Jesse, tell us about this funny news report that's coming up. Now we go to a news report out of Las Vegas about a restaurant that's been shut down by the health department four times in four months. Uh, this reporter, Darcy Spears, she brings us a pretty uh, funny story. Check it out. A double dose of dirty dining this week. And tonight, Darcy Spears takes us to a restaurant that's been shut down by the health district four times in four months. And you won't believe what they say is to blame. The manager at Baja Fresh saw us coming a mile away. Sorry about it, we cannot discuss anything. You can't discuss anything? You don't even know why I'm here. I know who you You know who I am and you know exactly why I'm here. Well, that's correct, and as you can see, everything is right. But everything has not been right at the location on Rancho and Craig, not for months. This repeat offender has been plagued with problems recently, failing one health inspection after another. You've been shut down four times in four months, which is unusual for a restaurant. We'd like to try to give you a chance to explain why there's so many problems. 
why you can't seem to get it right. No, it's, it's not us, really. If not them, <laughs> then who? We're investigating ourselves. What's the deal? In September, Baja Fresh was shut down twice in five days. On the 23rd, inspectors found improper hand washing, unsafe food temperatures, and the imminent health hazard of inadequate refrigeration. On the 27th, shut down again. Kitchenware and clean storage was soiled with food debris. The cabinet <laughs> under the soda station was in as bad shape as it was back in May. The grill covers were straight up disgusting, and there was excessive buildup on the grill the broiler and the vents. Um, we know somebody's tampering with our equipment. District Manager Jorge <laughs> Rivera blames their refrigeration issues on sabotage. He says someone disconnected the Freon in their fridge and purposely tripped a circuit breaker. He says they fired multiple employees from upper management on down, but we remind him inspectors found a lot more wrong than just the temperature in the fridge. Their pictures show a, a lot of mess and caked on food debris and grease and <laughs> dirty conditions. So do you think that was sabotage or that was just lazy people? I think that was part of the sabotage. Things started going downhill for them with a 28 demerit C grade in April. When it came time for reinspection, they failed and were shut down May 20th. Inspectors found shrimp at a dangerously unsafe temperature. The grill was caked with grease and food debris, and this cabinet was literally falling apart. Fast forward to July 18th, another closure for two imminent health hazards, sewage and refrigeration issues. <laughs> Inspectors said they were reusing shrimp marinade for an unspecified period of time, and storage pans were soiled and appeared to be reused from the previous day. The sink was filthy, equipment was caked with excessive food debris, and did someone order chicken with a side of cell phone? Bottom line, the grill was even dirtier than two months before, and the grease buildup on this vent and the floor under equipment suggests they simply weren't cleaning in any meaningful way. We have contacted LAPD because our home base is in California, so we are already taking these matters really high. So. Okay, so let me get this straight because this isn't something that we hear very often. You believe this particular location on Rancho and Craig, because it's been shut down four times in not four months, this not only this one, not only this one has been the victim of sabotage, someone from the inside. Some way, somehow, yeah. Some way, somehow. And you contacted happens, police because you think that there's yeah. something criminal behind that? Yeah. So at the moment, it's all I can tell you. No, you thank you for giving us the opportunity to, uh, you know, show what we're doing. Everything is, as you can see, we got our A letter. Uh, we're <laughs> working really close, uh, me directly with the health department, and thank you for your opportunity. The Baja Fresh on Eastern and Serene was also shut down for a few days in August for inadequate refrigeration. That's further feeding their sabotage theory. <laughs> the location on Rancho and Craig is now back open with a three demerit A. Darcy Spears. Thanks for that, Jesse. This guy, this guy was sticking with that sabotage line the whole way. I mean, reusing shrimp, come on. That is the grossest thing I've ever heard. Reusing shrimp marinade, soil reused pans. <laughs> Where do you get this stuff, Jesse? Just on the news. Just on the news. Straight up disgusting. I think that's what she said the report actually <laughs> said. Straight up disgusting. This is Our American Stories, and we want to hear your stories. Send them in to us. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Post them. And we're looking for, well, not all small businesses are great.
and some don't work out. We're also starting to dig into some of the best Shark Tank pitches because some of those pitches, the other night were a couple of guys who were pitching a, 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 an equivalent of a Jamba Juice, except the way you made your juice was getting on a bicycle and attaching a juicer <laughs> to the bicycle so they nice. could make their own juice. And needless to say, it was pretty funny, but not a single shark bit on the job idea. And it's, it's a shame about restaurants like these because we all know the best restaurants are the dirty, grimy little ones that you know just aren't going to pass those health code violations necessarily all the time. So. Well, no, of course. And by the way, a greasy grill, I mean, this is the yeah. point of a good grill. I mean, sometimes when I hear no grease, I think no taste. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. This sabotage. Is, sabotage. Anytime we get bad ratings, you know what we have to say? Sabotage. sabotage. Exactly. Sabotage. From, from somewhere in the lunar sphere. I mean, he was he was blaming this on corporate headquarters, Jesse. Corporate <laughs> headquarters. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And you can hear all of our work at ouramericannetwork.org. Go to Our American Dreamers segments in particular. And also our This Days in History is always brought to us by Hillsdale College.